Jesus. Someone's gonna break him! Oh god, what did I just pour into my gullet? I have her! I like them on my face. That tongue was huge! I want the guy to be hungry. Welcome to the third episode of the long-awaited Amazing Race Australia 2 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Hampton, and joining me as always is the Canadian who we tend to cut off mid-sentence when he won't stop talking about collisions, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the lady who is forever asking us how good she looks doing a podcast, Michelle Pistenovan. Oh, Jesus, good morning. You won't let us do any video podcasts. What are you talking about? That's because they're not podcasts, Michelle. Whatever you want to call them. Talking about a show. Podcast is an exclusively audio medium. We mm. don't need to rehash this argument like James and Sarah rehashing another fucking so coke argument. pedantic. Do you know who I miss? Adam and Dean. No, you don't. Sure. <laughs> you know who I do miss? Sue and Teresa. Oh, do you think they still use Aura Spray? Yeah, I think they do. No, I think... I think Sue and Teresa have become deeply into the goth movement now. They've abandoned all the hippie chic after the fact it didn't help them one iota in India. So previously, 11 teams flew to Delhi, where James and Sarah had a series of fights lasting over nine hours. Shane and Andrew had a terrible tuk-tuk driver. Sticky and Sam had an early setback, but were the ones who won the leg. And Adam and Dane ran out of money and ran out of race, as they were the first team sent back in. And it is worth pointing out that this leg is the only one in Amazing Race Australia history without an official audience figure, at least until it's lower than the top 20 for the night, Amazing Race Australia 5 and 6, as this episode aired on two separate nights, depending on where in Australia you were. What? That's why the recording's in two separate parts, but what? I don't remember this. Yeah, so the schedule of the season is that it was Wednesday night for the first three weeks, if you weren't in the ACT Queensland and New South Wales. The first two weeks aired on Wednesdays in those in those three states, or in those three areas, and this episode aired on the Thursday night, and then from episode four onwards, it went to Monday night, took a break for the Olympics, and then came back with the last three episodes airing on a Monday, Tuesday, and a Wednesday as finals week. So weird. Yeah, this is a janky-ass schedule. And this is the first episode that it actually affects. This is the only one that's still on the Wikipedia page does not have an official audience figure because of the fact that it aired over two separate nights. Weird. And therefore isn't in the top 20 for either of the nights. But you don't even have a number of viewers, as far as I'm aware. At least last time I checked, there's no no official even audience figures for this episode as a result of it. And it's a real shame because this episode is hilarious. This is just an absolutely brilliant episode for unintentional comedy yeah arguably not as funny as episode four but this is a brilliant episode nevertheless so during the rest period teams were transported by bus to jaipur the pink city of the rajasthan and when they rip and read they find out they must now travel by rickshaw to the red elephant temple to find their next clue and they have a massive 35 didgeridolaroos for this leg of the race so fun question for the two of you See if one or both of you can answer this correctly. The Mason Race has also visited two other cities referred to as the Pink City. What oh, are God. they? I re- yeah, I didn't know. As soon as I said the Pink City, I'm like, what was the other one? There's two other ones. There are two other Pink Cities that have been visited other than Jaipur. Are you talking about any franchise? Um, no, both are would be in the American version. Yeah, well, one was literally... This season? What was it? Oh my god. I'm not watching this season, so I can't help with that one, I'm afraid. It's this season, Logan. Where 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 was yeah. it? Toulouse? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And there's one more, one more pink city that oh. the American version has visited, other than Chaiper and Toulouse. There's a third one. I don't know. That would be Yerevan in Armenia. That's also referred huh. to as the Pink City. 
So how many, you know that the Amazing Race has been around for a really long time when there's three separate cities they can go to where either Phil Kogan or Grant Buller is saying, no, oh, this is known as the Pink City. Well, guess what? There are other Pink Cities too. I also wouldn't be surprised if Alan Wu did it because I think there's at least one Amazing Race Asia leg in Jaipur as well. Oh yeah, he definitely would have said the Pink City. But it's just funny because it's... Oh, this is the Pink City, that's the Pink City. Why not the Purple City or the Magenta City? They could have used so many different colors. I know, um, was it Morocco? With I'm not even going to try to pronounce the the name of that city, Morocco. The blue city that they went to. Chefchahouin? Chefchuhan? So it's Sticky and Sam who leave at 9 o'clock in the morning, with Michelle and Joe at 9.02, Sir and Teresa at 9.36, Ross and Taryn also at 9.36, but not in the same shot, Kim and Donna at 9.39, Paul and Steve at 9.40, Shane and Andrew at 9.46, Joseph and Grace at 9.54, James and Sarah also at 9.54, and Lucy and Amelia at 10.04. You should start making up really delayed times for when Lucy and Amelia start the leg. Yeah, Lucy and Amelia at 10.04pm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are they going to get the hell out of this one? <laughs> and I know Paul referred to himself as an intellectual powerhouse. I think Sticky and Sam, when they read this clue, I think they're the real intellectual powerhouses. Do you think there'll be elephants there? Yeah, red ones. Yeah, it's the, it's the red elephant temple they have to go to first, right? I think there's going to be elephants there, and they might be red. And in case you didn't know that Ross used to be in sports, he reminds us that he insists that they need to be first place every single time. And Taryn says that she would like to prove that she's not just his little girl anymore. And then we get, yet again, an unaired task, because there is an unaired detour here, which is almost certainly the exact same one that Norway did when they went to the Red Elephant Temple, which was slow and painful, or short and brutal. In Slow and Painful, teams had to lie in a bed of nails for five minutes each to get their next clue. And in Short and Brutal, teams had to individually walk across hot coals to get their next clue. The reason that we know it took place here is not only can you see a detail clue in Sarah's hand, but in addition to that, you can actually see most of the teams do confessionals in front of the hot coals. Why don't they air this stuff? That would have been good, even if they just did it really quickly. So let's say... You ha- would you replace a task? Would you uh, make one of the other aired tasks unaired for this leg? No, I probably would have made no. everything shorter. The clay pots went for a long time. Yeah, but the clay pots is very entertaining because nobody has the same experience. Yeah. And because it sets up the major storyline for the next three episodes? Yeah, because if you think about it, you have Kim and Donna and Paul and Steve's confrontation. You have Lucy and Amelia just having a pure character scene where the kids try and knock all the pots off for them and Amelia scolding Lucy in confessional about not using her school teacher powers. Sarah? <laughs> you have just Sarah, yeah. Sarah getting her ass pinched and threatening to <laughs> tell a child's mum. You have Sue and Teresa's diabolical attempt at this challenge and losing all of their pots basically before they've even left the starter point. That's that's yeah. four different storylines that revolve around the part task. Yeah. I, I want to see who lay on the bed of nails, though. That would have been entertaining. Uh, Shane and Andrew definitely did, because Logan got it out of Shane and Andrew in, in uh, their interview. Okay. Other than that, I think most of the teams probably did the, the short and brutal, because unless it was a queuing thing, you can get that done in a minute yeah. at most. It's a quick task. So the episode does then skip straight forward to the first aired roadblock of the season, which is who's a fast learner. And in this roadblock, one team member must pass an Indian driving test in the streets of Jaipur to receive their next clue. And it is Michelle, Sticky, Ross, Sue, Kim, Paul, Shane, Grace, Amelia, and Sarah doing this roadblock. Making Grace, Amelia, and Sarah learn how to drive in Jaipur and take the same lesson What a hell of a trio that is to have in the same room together. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking, I wonder if the instructor just thought, whatever happens here, uh, please, please don't sue me. None of them had really learned to drive a manual car until two weeks before the race. And it's not an excuse for Amelia, because her and Lucy were cast a year beforehand. If you know that you are probably going to get brought straight back, 
as soon as you have the time, you probably learn to drive a manual car and learn to swim and learn to do all the basic things that people moan about all the time on social media when people don't do in the race. And do you recall which sign of these made me laugh the most, Michael? Um, there's a few. Was it the Tonga one that made you laugh the most? Tonga prohibited. Yeah, because you take every opportunity you can to to put in that picture of the uh, of the Olympian from Tonga. <laughs> yeah. Of the what from Tonga? The Olympian. Oh. The, the, there's a guy from Tonga who's been in the Summer and Winter Olympics. Really? What does India have against him? Why can't he drive there? <laughs> he went viral on social media for being ridiculously attractive and oiled up at the Olympic opening ceremony. Bizarre. Basically. How bizarre. Yeah, er, uh, Eric and Rona wouldn't have been allowed on this season either. Well, Rona would have, but Eric, no. So Michelle only learned to drive a manual car two weeks before the race, which seems like a, uh, a rookie move. And Paul says he's here to win at all costs, but he doesn't want anyone to know that. And they immediately follow it up with Kim and Donna saying that they know that him and Steve are there to win at all costs and will burn people if they need to. How does Paul think he is so... I don't... Un... I... He just, as a person, he is so deluded. I just don't understand. I will be defending Paul a little bit on these podcasts, I think, because yes, he's obviously delusional and uber competitive, but it's entirely how he was cast. He will be being egged on by producers going, go on, say something competitive, go on, say something competitive. And with the exception of like the confrontation with the tuk-tuks and stuff, he doesn't actually do anything to people's faces. But in confessionals, I'm thinking, you know, definitely some producers told him to say some things. Because Steve's just sitting there and not saying anything and obviously thinking, Jesus, he's got to say this and I'm not just going to say a thing in response because it's ridiculous. You drove into me. There are moments like the you drove into me bit (laughs) where obviously Paul is just being a dick. Well, he taunt. He did more taunting. He did the just like the starting line. He did the run backwards and taunt a random team just for the hell of it. Bit again. <laughs> I would say about ninety percent of Paul's content about being an arsehole is not to teams' faces, but he was obviously cast as being the uber competitive guy, and they wanted a a complete arse buffhead, but. I was cast as the completely competitive guy on the chase. It's the entire reason that I got through the audition was because I was ludicrously competitive and basically took over. So I can kind of see what Paul's up to. <laughs> he knows what makes good TV, I think. There's a little bit of, of egging it on to make sure he gets airtime. Yeah. He's still deluded, though. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Seriously. Yeah, he's, he's completely crazy. <laughs> but there's... A little bit of producers egging him on, I think. There's a little bit of him knowing what makes good TV, and everyone loves good TV. And then there's, yeah, him just being a bit of a socially unaware prick, for want of a better Jeez, oh, yes. And this is the first episode where Shane and Andrew having terrible, terrible drivers is acknowledged. Yeah, Shane and Andrew say that they do really well on the challenges, including the unaired ones but not necessarily the travel aspects of the show. Which is a shame for them, because there aren't that many equalizers travel-wise. <laughs> and one thing I've noted in these three rounds is that whenever they play to Michelle and Joe's strengths, they get really far ahead of the other teams. When they do well, they do really well. And one thing I've noticed is, as we mentioned last episode, the editors seem to like burying Grace by showing her mispronouncing things. So she pronounces Welcome to Jaipur as Welcome to Jaipur, like she's a Chris Lilly character. Jaipur private schoolgirl. Sticky and Sam also have a terrible driver here, and then we get a very awkward (laughs) confrontation between Sarah and Grace, their first major direct confrontation of the season. Yeah, so to put this into context, when... We were on the your team number group at the time. Sarah was on there quite a lot. Michelle and Joe did a bit. Steve was Steve's still on there technically. He's still not left the group. Sarah has, but 
Sarah was saying and alluding to the fact there would be a massive confrontation between her and Grace, and how much of an arsehole Grace was, and how she's been getting a really sweet edit, but she's really awful in real life. This is the first time that we kind of see those two characters clash. Before it was more just comments behind each other's backs a little bit, but it it takes a whole it goes to a whole other level here. Yeah, because Sarah uses her assets to try and distract the other drivers and get her and James a head start. Is the polite way of putting it, I think. Sarah would phrase it as showing off her buzzies. And then Grace tries to compete with her and says, these are real and my driver is vomiting right now. Oh my god, it's not very... It's so awful what she says. I'm like, oh, I don't think this shows you in a good light, love. And then no. Grace follows it up by saying that, oh, Sarah is ugly because of her eyebrows. Yeah. Okay. And it's a bit tougher to to say those things when you know especially someone like Sarah who has clearly had some work done that there could be some insecurities about people typically people who get a lot of cosmetic surgery have a bit more insecurities about their appearance so to then go after the work she's had done yeah it's it's a bit awkward bit of a low blow yeah, so in, in episode one, when I said, bear in mind that probably we are going to come to the conclusion that the villain of the season is not Paul, even though he's an arsehole, it is Grace. This is the sort of thing that I'm talking about, where Paul never crosses the line into interpersonal attacks. Yes, he's arrogant. Yes, he's a complete prick. But he never goes after people in the same way that Grace goes after, especially Sarah. And knowing from Sarah's math season... You're 100% correct. Sarah does still have those sort of self-esteem issues. And, I mean, she still is in the beauty industry. She was working as a beautician at the time that the season filmed. She still has a lot of those insecurities that you're picking up on there. And it is utterly disgusting to see how great streets are in this episode, in my opinion. Yeah, that's the big big difference between a Grace and a Paul. Paul is just going to say, I can bench press the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You drove into me. I am the intellectual powerhouse. But he's not going to say, oh, Sarah's Botox and eyebrows make me want to vomit. He's not going to say that. Yeah, he's not going to go for the personal attacks. He's arrogant, but not the same level of arsehole that Grace shows in this in this episode. And... To be honest, it doesn't let up for a few episodes. But, yeah, I mean, Sarah is very upfront about the work that she's had done. But she obviously has some of those insecurities that you are picking up on. When you watch her on maths, you see a completely different side to Sarah. And she's a lot more vulnerable than she is in this season. And one other thing to note, too, is that during this whole confrontation in the Tuk Tuks, that... Grace's response isn't a proportional response. Sarah's more of a, oh, I'm going to essentially flash the driver to distract them. That's hilarious. And then making it into a fun thing for herself, as opposed to Grace saying, oh, you know, mine are real. Yours are fake. My driver's vomiting because of you. Completely different level of response there. It's it, All you can think is, well, that really took the whole fun out of that moment. Yeah, yeah. Sarah is doing it just to A, amuse herself, B, amuse James. And as James says in the driving school challenge, like Sarah just doesn't shut up. Sarah's constantly talking. Sarah's constantly kind of entertaining herself. And Grace just completely takes it in the wrong way here. Yeah, she's taking the fun out of the fun bags. <laughs> Wait, I lower the tone, just honest. Oh, well. <laughs> Nice serious discussion about body image and and insecurities (laughs) and Logan just goes for a fun bags joke. (laughs) So Lucy and Amelia have a confessional where they say they want to prove how two nice people can win, surely. They're setting up a wonderful editor joke there. 
And I also love the optimism of Seven putting on the screen as their weekly poll, who will crash in the driving school challenge? I forgot about those. They drove into me. <laughs> Just heavily implying that not everyone's going to make it out of this challenge unscathed. Who's going to crash, do you reckon? <laughs> How many people will end up in the hospital? Will it be over under four people? I know you made this point on your blog as well, but I think this challenge was pretty much impossible to fail. Yeah. Because if people could fail it, it would have been a a closed loop, whereas it's just essentially a way of moving them from point A to point B in a fun way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... We saw a lot of people do this roadblock not well and still get the clue. No, I mean, Grace, for most of it, drove at five kilometres an hour. Like, that's not legal. And Paul drove at two kilometres an hour. Yeah, Paul kept stalling, which, when you're on a driving test in a manual car and you stall, everything goes out the window and you just panic. I was walking past someone uh, earlier in the week, maybe back end of last week, who, because I live quite close to my local driving test centre, you see a lot of people on their tests. And I was walking across a pedestrian crossing and walked around a, a driving school car and then looked through the window to see that the driving school car that had obviously stopped on the pedestrian crossing accidentally had an examiner in it. Because the examiners all wear fluorescent gilets, so you know when they're on a test. And I felt so bad for the guy who was driving at that time. <laughs> because... That's the sort of thing where you do it on your test. Believe me, I have experience with this. You do something stupid on your test and you just know, shit, I failed. This is going to cost me another 120 quid or whatever it is now. Oh my god, I'm mortified. I just felt so bad for him because I've been there. So, in the case of Teresa being the worst backseat driver in human history, she then gets the aura spray out and sprays the guy directly in the face. And I'm sure Stu loved that. That was my favorite part. Just it's one thing for you and your partner to be in on the aura spray, but random East Indian driving instructor now has to suffer from the aura spray. He didn't consent to that. At least, at least Teresa didn't use the pepper spray by accident. If that was water, that would be fine. But it's going to be water infused with like rose petals and other bullshit. So that wouldn't have been entirely pleasant for him to get directly in the face. Imagine if he had an allergic reaction. Our driver's passed out. How the hell do we drive this thing? His neck just balloons. (laughs) So the answer to the question that they put out, who's going to crash on the driving test, was technically Sticky, because a guy drives his handcart into Sticky's car when he's on the test. How good was he with the stick shift? My god. I know. Genuinely impressive, but we did see that in episode one. To be fair, it's not exactly yeah. a surprise that he can drive a stick shift or a manual. Well, oh, that's what. No wonder his, his parents named him after after that, after his stick shift. Sticky Stick is his official legal name. <laughs> Sticky Stick Stickerson. And Michelle is the first to complete the roadblock, and teams are now told that they have to stack and deliver seventy-five clay pots on an ox cart through the market. Should they break more than 15 pots, they will serve a penalty when they arrive with the pots. And this was also a task in Amazing Race Asia 3, which was a detour, and an intersection task in Amazing Race Philippines 1. Sticky then finishes the roadblock in second, with Sue in third and Ross in fourth. And Paul says he's finding the driving embarrassing. He's confident at driving, but not confident having an instructor next to him, and as a result, keeps stalling the car. Shane said to Andrew when he knew that they were flying to India that there is no way they'll be driving in India. It's an absolute madhouse. Uh, there's no way they'll they'll make us drive there. In Jaipur, there's no way. We would die in five minutes. Why have you turned into a Southern American? <laughs> <laughs> there was no Aussie there at all. <laughs> Oh, bless your heart, Logan. (laughs) He tried, but failed. He was heading down to Texas. (laughs) Hopefully at the pit stop to let us watch some John Wayne flicks. I think it's fair to say, God bless this mess. (laughs) 
And then in another ludicrous scene, Paul and Kim stop at traffic lights at the same time, so they decide to have an unofficial drag race in Jaipur. The saddest drag race of all time. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Kim actually gets off of the lights and Paul stalls the car again. The driving instructor actually has to lean over and help him restart the car, which is mortifying. That's good. Love it. Love it when something like that happens to Paul. Paul Montgomery is not Vin Diesel. I think the difference between Paul and Grace is that obviously you're rooting against Paul and obviously you don't want him to succeed, but he's kind of magnanimous in defeat. Whereas with Grace, you don't realise how much of an absolute cow she is during this season until you think about it after the season and go, actually, Grace wasn't very pleasant, was she? I think, Paul, every week you're kind of going, oh, I hope this is the one where he screws up. And with Grace, you never really realise that you want her to get a comeuppance until it's too late. Yeah. So Michelle and Joe have trouble moving their rocks at all, and when it does move, they lose about 20 pots straight away, as do Sticky and Sam. Sarah says she's only driven an automatic car before, and what could possibly go wrong with her learning to drive a manual in the perfectly quiet, not traffic-laden streets of Jaipur? According to her insurance company, Grace does not have the best driving record. You see Joseph visibly cringe while in the back seat. And how good does she look driving a manual? Why would she even ask that he's in the back seat? How can he even see her? And seriously, seriously, Grace. And also, of all the people in the world you want to compliment you on your looks, not your brother. No. Just ask Suki and Jinder. Exactly. <laughs> By the end of this season, there is going to be a lot of Suki and Jinder references. You do not want another one here, Grace. Oh yeah, right. So Sarah actually has a very good tactic when she's driving in that she just constantly beeps the horn at people and they get out of her way. <laughs> I mean, there have been stupider tactics on this sort of a challenge before. It's very resourceful from Sarah to think, I'm just going to make my presence known and tell people to move away from me. <laughs> And then, as she said, Grace does ask how good she looks driving a manual, right after threatening to run anyone who walks in the street over. Which, I'm sure, is a huge threat when she's driving at five kilometres an hour. People walk into the streets, Grace tries to run them over, but she's driving so slowly, she just kind of bumps off them. And then they just, they end up, uh, when she bumps into them, they just lay on the front of the vehicle because she's going so slow, and they're thinking, oh! Free ride to where I need to go. I'll just hop off when I'm close to my house. Yeah, what you can't see is that Adam and Dana are actually just on the side of the road going, come on, this is the only way we can make it to Kutum Minar. <laughs> we don't have to sell our shoes if we do this. For our rupiah. Our rupiah is no good here for some reason. We should have sold it for rupees. Out of interest, what would be your tactic with the pot challenge? Oh, God. Just smash the 15. <laughs> I feel like there's only two legitimate tactics, which is either do what James and Sarah do in the end and think about it strategically, take your time, try and not get the penalty, or just go absolute hell for leather and go, I don't care about the pots, I'm just going to go straight there and serve the penalty and bank the time. I'd always try and save the pots. I'd always try and not get the penalty, but yeah, you can only do what you can do. I think the strategic move is probably just take the penalty, to be honest. Just go balls to the wall and go for it. You had to load 75 on there, right? Yeah, you had yeah. to load the 75. You didn't have to even make any effort to keep the 75. Then I would just, you know, find the same kids that broke Lucy and Amelia's pots and be like, okay, as we go along, feel free to smash every pot on this cart. Just give them a baseball bat and say, have that eight <laughs> Yeah, or I or give him a cricket bat, as Shane and Andrew would say. But yeah, I would have used the teacher voice and been so ropeable at those kids. They would have just run a mile. Oh my God, I can't believe they didn't use their teacher voice. Not being funny, Michelle, I would have loved to see you do this challenge. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like voice. we either would have had really nice, sweet Michelle oh, doing no. it really well, Jesus. or absolute hell demon Michelle going hell demon. get off those pots, yes. you little shits or I'm going to throw you in the oubliette. Oh my god. I've gone off. There's no middle ground I don't think. With this no, it would either be lovely Michelle or get in the oubliette, you little shits. Creep. There's no 
nothing in the middle. No, there's no middle. Correct. So Michelle and Joe arrive with 48 pots and have a 15-minute penalty, as do Sticky and Sam with their 38. And Paul finishes the roadblock in fifth with Kim in sixth. When Sue and Teresa go to take off, the cart moves and almost everything falls off immediately. They've already failed the challenge, and it's not even begun yet. Shane then nearly hits a dog and gets himself cancelled by the audience, and him and Andrew leave in seventh. <laughs> like, even if this aired in 2020, when everyone hated cops, like, more people would have hated him if he'd run over a dog than if he was an out-and-out cop. Oh god, yes. Like, it's a genuine TV trope to not kick the dog. It's a sign of a villain. I mean, Grace probably would have done it if the dog had walked out, but Shane and Andrew wouldn't, because they're nice. Kids in the audience are just there for carnage, and they cheer literally every time a pot falls in the market, <laughs> and this is even before we know that they're trying to throw them off and annoy Lucy and Amelia. <laughs> yeah. And then the big other incident of the episode, when Kim drives his cart past, and Paul's backpack accidentally knocks the pots off. You drove into me! And Kim and Donna obviously think that it was deliberate because they're already annoyed with Paul, and call him a dickheaded confessional. The buff heads are now dickheads, apparently. Buff heads. They're not buff heads. They're not on Survivor. <laughs> the rain buffs on their heads. <laughs> Michelle, I'm going to ask you first. Who was in the right here? Was it Kim and Donna or was it Paul and Steve? Look, you can't help where your backpack goes. Sometimes you don't know what, what you're doing with your backpack. I mean, Logan would know. He's, he wears a backpack all the time when he's not travelling. Like, it's got a mind of its own. The question, I think, is not necessarily who's in the right. It's, if Kim and Donna hadn't already got pissed off by Paul, would they have taken it so personally when this happens? Probably not. It would have been funnier if Paul had just, like, jumped backwards onto the cart and then quickly hop off and say, no, you drove into me. I think that Paul was in the right overall. Did he lean into it? Maybe a little, because he knew it would be good television. But I think Kim and Donna allowed their hatred of Paul to cloud their judgment in this situation. Yeah. That's my ruling on it. I think obviously Paul knew what was happening as soon as he got brushed past with his backpack. And maybe he leaned back a little bit knowing that it would annoy Kim and Donna. Because they have a very hair-trigger temper. And I suspect they may be fun people to mess with. But I don't think that Paul did it deliberately originally. No, I don't think so. It was a lean instead of a step, if I recall the instant replay bit I did on my blog a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think I think Kim could have probably tried to manoeuvre it a little bit more around Paul, but maybe he was looking for a scapegoat if Pot started falling, knowing that Paul was there to take the blame. I mean, I'm glad that Paul did knock off a couple of the pots, because it's hilarious television of Kim and Donna just genuinely fuming with him even hours later. And obviously it feeds into next episode, but it's just delightful television to see people get really annoyed at each other. Do you think Kim and Donna protested the 15-minute penalty when they delivered the pots, you think, and say, well, that's not our fault because Paul kept smashing them? I think I would not want to be any producer around Kim and Donna in this leg. <laughs> I think they were probably quite warm. I think they were probably very pissed off. I think they were bored of Paul's existence by this point, And I think they were just looking for anyone to shout at. Would teams have been allowed to just deliberately smash another team's pots and say, well, Paul would, like, for instance, if Kim and Donna had retaliated and just picked up a couple of Paul and Steve's pots out of anger and just smash them on the ground and say, oh, there you go. Now we're even. Could you imagine if they all just got into an all-in brawl with the boss <laughs> and just got, and they arrive there and the guy says, um, yeah, penalty, you both have no pots. <laughs> you both have no pots and all four of you are bleeding and have bruises. <laughs> as much as I don't want to, for the second episode on the trot, reference Mark and Michael, going back to them sabotaging the bike films, they got a penalty because they impeded other teams from completing the challenge deliberately. I think if Kim and Donna had retaliated, they would have got a penalty, but Paul and Steve wouldn't have. Yeah. Because it wasn't deliberate that Paul's backpack knocked off the pots. But Kim and Donna would have been furious if that was the ruling, though. 
yeah, Kim and Donna would have been furious regardless because they seem furious people. I think Donna would have picked up Grant Bowler at the pit stop and just done <laughs> a, a pro wrestling body slam on him. No, I think Paul would have retaliated back again, so there wouldn't have been any pots left. Even even if Sue and Teresa did it, Paul wouldn't have just got to the pit stop just with the alibi, oh, it was just my backpack. He would have shoved pots off theirs as well. I don't think Paul would have retaliated because he knows the rules. Paul is antagonistic enough to teasingly do things to them and get away with it in the confines of the rules, which is exactly what I would do in the situation. I would look at the rules and see what the limits are. But I don't think he'd retaliate knowing that he would get a penalty if he did. And also, from Paul's point of view, if you're going to have a penalty with anyone in this cast, you probably don't want it to be Kim and Donna after you've crossed them, in that case, twice in the same leg. (laughs) You would not want to serve a 30-minute penalty sitting next to Kim and Donna with a deeply awkward amount of tension there. Fun. Fun for us. Oh, it'd be hilarious television, and obviously would have been the banner if it had happened, but I think Paul knows the rules, being honest. He knows what limits he can push. So once teams do deliver their pots or serve out their 15-minute penalty, they get another roadblock, which is who is the Stairmaster. And in this roadblock, which does not have to be done by the teammate or the person who did the first one, one team member must use a combination of 41 steps down and 10 steps up at the ancient step well of Amir to reach a guru who has their next clue. Can I say this challenge is something that sticks in my mind for 20 years. It's For me, it's one of the iconic challenges for me. And I always come back to thinking about this challenge and how hard it would have been with those stairs and getting the correct count. It's just one of my, I don't know, top 10 iconic challenges, which to some people might seem a bit bizarre because it's not that. You know, it's not that memorable to a lot of people, but to me it is. This challenge is very emblematic of the season because they obviously found this wonderful location in Jaipur when no Amazing Race has ever done a challenge like this and thought, how can we use this location and make it really cool, make it a memorable location, make it a memorable task? And yes, watching people walk up and down stairs, probably not the most interesting one for us to recap, and we will be Mm. rattling through it. But it's a beautifully set challenge and a beautifully thought up challenge. And something that, going back to something I love to harp on about on these Historians episodes, it's something you could not do anywhere else in the world. I wish they would have shown the guru have his index finger out just pointing the individual steps that each person was taking. I'd forgotten how arseholeish the guru is to them. It's just oh like, no, God. go back. Go back. Go back. Go back. Go back. The best thing about it is the fact that because he's in this enclosed space in the ancient well, the acoustics on it are weird. So it sounds distorted when he screams, go back at them. That's good. And you know what? This whole episode, I don't know why I was thinking of Logan, but because it was called the Stairmaster, I just kept thinking of the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper. And I kept thinking, is Logan taking this? Is, is he, you know, putting these two bits together? I just kept thinking of it. Ghostbusters. Well, let's be honest. If Logan and I were a team on this season, I would have done the first roadblock. He probably would have done the second. Yeah, probably. I would have had to do the first one because you can't drive. Yeah. But I I think probably you would have got less frustrated at this challenge than I would. Yeah. I would have had had fun with this one. Yeah, you're a lot more chill energy than I am. I would have probably worked it out like Paul did, to be fair, and gone, oh, I need to go up two sets of stairs but I would have got far more frustrated far quicker than you do. So it is Michelle, Sticky, Taryn, Sue, Donna, Paul, Andrew, Joseph, James, and Amelia doing this roadblock. And Sarah says, thank God for Botox, as her face doesn't look nearly as terrified as it should be when she's driving <laughs> the streets of Jaipur. <laughs> Ross and Taryn have 64 pots left, so leaving third, with Sue and Teresa having 33, so having to serve a penalty, and making the most of their time, they decide to visit the children in child jail behind the pot shop. Yeah. Why are they all behind bars? <laughs> Did, was, was it for breaking pots? Officially, it's a school. But actually, in reality, they were charged with breaking Australian teams' pots and sentenced to 10 minutes in pot jail. 
Is that where they keep all the kids before they sent them to Qatar to build the stadiums? Yeah. Nice dark joke there, Saunders. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's nothing that lightens up an Amazing Race Australia podcast more than talking about child labour. It is what it is. It's like the it's like the Ryan Seacrest bit when he was I can't remember which award show he was hosting. So it was right around when the time of one Kid Nation came out, and then he made an offhand joke like, "Oh, and yeah, the studio lights are really bright in here thanks to the kids from Kid Nation who are in the back room pedaling to power the stage. Keep going, kids! You're doing great." So James and Sarah leave the first roadblock in eighth. And Kim and Donna have 30 pots left and Paul and Steve have 35. So both have a very awkward 15 minute penalty to spend with each other. Shane and Andrew have 45 pots left. And as we said, Grace refuses to go over five kilometers an hour, but still leaves that first roadblock in ninth with Lucy and Amelia in last. Sticky then solves the step puzzle in two attempts, as far as we know, and him and Sam leave in first. And teams have now find Naharaga Fort, the pit stop for this leg of the race. The last team to check in may be eliminated. I wonder if Sticky learned how to complete the second roadblock after playing maybe Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone computer games with using the change in staircases. Maybe that helped him out. I noticed on your blog you tried to sort the teams into uh, into Harry Potter houses. And I have to disagree that Kim and Donna would be Gryffindor. They would not be Gryffindor. You don't think so? Nah. Nah, Gryffindor's all about, like, bravery and honour and stuff. I, w- I want to know th- what the houses are. Are Lucy and Amelia Hufflepuff? I have, I have no memory of doing oh, this. <laughs> I want to know who, which which houses each went into now. Lucy and Amelia, I think, are really Hufflepuff. It's always funny when somebody on Twitter will tweet me something from my blog and it'll be a joke I made nine years ago <laughs> and I have to go and they'll just... They'll, they'll drop the joke without any context. So I'm just really confused as to what the hell they're talking about. And then go back into the blog and see, oh, I did make that joke. Okay, then. So you said that Sticky and Sam, Lucy and Amelia, Ross and Taryn, and Shane and Andrew were Gryffindor. Really? Yep. He said Hufflepuff was Adam and Dane and Ross and Taryn. You said Ravenclaw was Sue and Teresa, Joseph and Grace, and Michelle and Joe. And Slytherin was Paul and Stephen, James and Sarah. As a result, you did miss Kim and Donna, so Kim and Donna are assumed to be the other Gryffindor team in there. Mm. I don't think Kim and Donna are nearly brave or honourable enough to be Gryffindor. Being perfectly honest. Well, this was done as of episode three, so I'm sure my houses would change by the end. I think even as of episode three, the amount of shit that they flung towards Paul and Steve in this episode... The foods. I don't think that that is a very Gryffindor trait, being perfectly honest. I think they're more Ravenclaw. Well, Ravenclaw's intelligence, oh. more than anything. You think? I think um... they're probably more Hufflepuff, to be honest. Well, they certainly turned into Hufflepuffs by the end of next leg. Yeah, I don't think Joseph and Grace are really... Ravenclaw either. I think they're probably... Well, I think Grace definitely is Slytherin. So Taryn and Michelle both arrive at the same time and use each other as a motivator to leave quickly and both get rejected and the guru screams, go back, at them. Go back. And Taryn leaves the roadblock in second and Ross realises that he has to trust Taryn and that she can do things without his help. Or, as we also know, every freaking father and daughter storyline ever in Amazing Race history. Yeah, you take mid-50s father, you take late-20s daughter, and you go, what is their storyline? The answer is this, basically. Interestingly as well, they had to pull numbers for the roadblock. What do you mean? 31 and 10, right? <laughs> no, they they had to... You know how you get like something like a skydive roadblock? Teams appear at the board and then have to pull a number for the oh, order yeah. they're doing. They had to do this in this one, because... You see Sue and Teresa pull the, or have the four number in their hand. So I presume that there was a capacity issue and that only a certain amount of teams would be allowed to do this challenge, but... Well, you know why? Because there's no railings, and if you're running up and down, you could push someone off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it it never actually came into play in in this challenge because nobody was really there at the same time. It was only two or three people at the same time at most. 
And Sticky and Sam have a bit of trouble with their rickshaw driver, and he tries to double the amount of money that they agreed originally. What was the driver thinking? Because Sticky, he he would have seen Sticky and Sam just begging from all the locals to cover the bill for it. Yeah, and he does end up letting them off with a couple of hundred rupee, from what we see. The other interesting thing is, I think there may have been an unaired task here, because Sticky and Sam talk about knowing that Ross and Taryn are in second, and Sticky and Sam were never at this roadblock at the same time as Ross and Taryn. They had no idea that Ross and Taryn were actually going to be in second place, as far as I can tell. Hmm. So I think there may have potentially been a an unaired route marker of some description, or maybe even an active route info between the second roadblock and the pit stop. If only the jump cuts was as bad as with Sarah reading the clue, so we would know for sure. I haven't gone back and tested my theory on uh, on rewatching the episode again, but I have a feeling that maybe there was something on air there, because Sticky and Sam knew that Ross and Taron were in second, and keep talking about Ross and Taron being in second and being right behind them. So they start begging, and eventually their driver lets them go, and they check in first to win a home entertainment system valued at $5,000. By Bingley. And that is a perfect prize for them, given that they were flatmates, so they can just share one home entertainment system, and they don't have to fight over it. Ross and Taron then check in second... And Joseph and Grace get their clue almost straight away at the uh, the second roadblock. And then we get Sarah having her ass pinched and giving a child a death stare for repeatedly pinching her ass. Lucy and Amelia have the group of kids throwing the pops off the cart, and even though Lucy is a teacher, she didn't tell them to stop, and Amelia's a little bit incredulous with her and confessional. And Lucy and Amelia have 33 pops left, and James and Sarah have 64. Michelle does the second roadblock six or seven times before leaving in third. And then Paul gives a confessional, saying he knew that his gloating that he was Mr. Mental Performer would come back to bite him, so he needed to leave this roadblock in one attempt. And he treats the roadblock like a logic puzzle, and leaves in one attempt in fourth place. Hashtag intellectual powerhouse. And how does being an accountant help you immensely with help just counting stairs? Like, God. He does that all the time at his job. Whenever he goes on break and has to leave the building, he's like, okay, it's eight steps down, and then I cross the street, and then when I, and then there's a mall nearby, and it's about uh, 13 steps up to the food court. Sometimes I count stairs, but I don't do it all the time. It's so funny. I was out with someone the other week. And they said, oh, yeah, there's 16 stairs here. We'd walk down to dinner and then he was going to walk back up. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, oh, because I counted them on the way down. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Just a random, random thing to, to do and actually tell people you're doing it. I don't know this for certain, but I wouldn't be surprised if it came out that Paul does like logic puzzles and stuff for fun. Because speaking as someone who is just as competitive, although slightly less of an arsehole than uh, than Paul. I do have a puzzle magazine subscription, and I do do puzzles most nights. Mm. Usually word puzzles, but I think Paul does have a similar kind of thinking style to me in that respect. So I I did give him a lot of praise for treating it like a logic puzzle, because that's the way to, to breeze through to solve a roadblock. Would he be the Stanley Hudson then and playing in his Sudoku book in corporate meetings? Well, from my experience of accountants, yeah. Yeah, 100% he would just do puzzles in uh, in meetings. So Kim tries to have a word with Steve about the quote-unquote collision, but is cut off mid-sentence by Paul returning, and they leave in fifth. Yeah, that was so, that was so funny to me. Where he's really eager to lecture Steve. Oh no, wait, we kicked your ass at this roadblock, so we can't have this conversation anymore. Later, losers. <laughs> and Paul and Steve, just to stick it to Kim and Donna a little bit more, have parked their tuk-tuk in the way of Kim and Donna's one, and apparently they pushed it in front of the uh, the tuk-tuk just to make sure they could beat them. I don't know how much of that was Kim and Donna's hyperbole and how much of it was actually real. There just wasn't that much space to pull out of that area. Now, at this point in the episode, Kim and Donna are seeing every single fault that they can in Paul and Steve's behaviour. Yeah, every action is a microaggression, which 
Paul is, Paul is not the type to target an individual person repeatedly. No, he's not Grace. No, he's not going to, almost like a borderline bullying tactic of, oh, here's this one person I can just pick on every chance I get. With him, it's always going to be much more general ways of of screwing with people, such as the running backwards while, while taunting and saying, oh, look at me, I can run backwards. Do I think at this point Paul realised how much fun it is to wind up Kim and Donna? A hundred percent. Do I think he deliberately targeted them all the time? No, of course not. But the problem is that Kim and Donna were just so blinkered by Paul's behaviour that they couldn't see the wood for the trees. It's harming their race because they are so laser-focused on everything Paul does and not everything they're doing. It's also funny that they become... You would never expect these two teams to have a rivalry for the first three episodes where they're consistently around each other. Especially in these two India legs where they're almost always neck and neck. Who who would have thought that? Yeah. No, they are absolutely obsessed with Paul at this point in the episode. And it's it's just not healthy. Run your own race, guys. Stop being so focused on Paul. He's, he's, he's not even doing that well in the race yet. No, I'm coming across as a real Paul fanboy in this episode. I really wasn't at the time. I was a, a huge Sticky and Sam fan at the time. And thought that Paul was a complete prick. But, I mean, when he's compared with someone like Grace, he looks a little bit better. So, Michelle and Joe checking in third, and in a foot race to the pit stop, Kim and Donna checking in fourth, leaving Paul and Steve to be fifth place. Andrew leaves in sixth, as Shane said. They're good at the challenges, just not necessarily at the travel. And Grace says that she's glad she didn't do this roadblock, as she doesn't really like using her brain, getting her her first episode Tyson. Oh my lord. Why would you want to say that? Like, you're on national television. So, obviously, for the first, maybe, it'll probably cut down to about 45, 50 minutes of this episode, I've been quite hard on Grace. Soon as Grace said that quote, I have in my notes just... Take five minutes to let Michelle rant about Grace, because <laughs> Grace is everything you hate in a, in a woman on this show. Oh, she is. Oh, my. And then why did she call Grant Sir when she got to the map? Yes, Sir. Like, what? We're not in America. What is that about? We don't call I anyone Sir. I think Buller's knighted. Yeah, unless you're a knight, you're not a Sir in Australia, really. You don't call anyone Sir. I'm starting the campaign now. Grant Bowler should be knighted for services to entertainment, namely <laughs> putting up with these knobheads all the time. <laughs> One interesting note of gender difference here is that Sarah and Grace say, oh, I'd be, I'd be hopeless. I'd be hopeless at this counting task. I'd be hopeless at this math task. As we see people such as uh, Joseph and James do really well with this roadblock. We see Paul do really well. And then most of the women at this roadblock do not do so well. Or if it's a co-ed team, were there any women in co-ed teams who did this roadblock? I guess just Donna and Taryn? And Donna got destroyed by yeah, uh, Paul. Yeah. And then Taryn struggled a little bit. No, no, that you didn't. No, because they were second. I guess... We're sticking Sam ahead of them at the going into that second roadblock. So sticking Sam, as far as we're aware, did not see any other teams at that second roadblock, which is why I think right. probably another challenge we didn't see. Okay, so Taryn didn't get overtaken by anybody. Yeah, okay. so so Taryn and Michelle appeared at basically the same time, and then Taryn was out first. But yeah, it wasn't a good look when yeah. Oh, I, I can't do this. Let my male partner and the team do this task. I'm hopeless. Numbers are tough. Math is hard. And it's not like Sarah is a slouch in the intelligence department. She's obviously a little bit competitive and a mm. little bit highly strung by her own omission, but I think Sarah is not necessarily unintelligent. I think it's just the fact that James was like, yeah, this is more suited to me, I'll do it. Did anyone else catch on to the hilarious, hilarious Teresa-turned-Mother Teresa outfit while she was waiting for Sue to do the roadblock? Yeah, yeah, she yes. just slowly adds more and more clothing. What is going on? The way that she ha had her head wrapped was just like Mother Teresa. My favourite thing about the whole Sue and Teresa breakdown at this roadblock is the fact that you have Teresa doing all that, 
But then you have Sue using the aura spray in the one way that it is actually useful, which is to protect her from heat stroke. Because she was out there for about three hours. At that point, she needed to get some fluid in her, whether that is spraying herself in the face with the aura spray, which at least will contain some water, or actually having a drink of water, which hopefully they were provided with. I wonder if Teresa did do that intentionally, though, just so people would start calling her Mother Teresa. Jeez. (laughs) I, I didn't know that she was an Albanian nun in disguise. The other thing about Sue and Teresa at the uh, at the second roadblock as well is when Lucy and Amelia arrive. Obviously, at at that point, Sue's been like, "Yeah, I've got hours buffer. We're still not seeing Lucy and Amelia." Soon as Amelia arrives and starts doing this roadblock and does very well at it for what it's worth, you contrast them. And I've mainly talked about this with the um, the no, it smells like shit confessional from Major Mouse Twenty Five. But there's a brilliant example of this here, and a brilliant example of. The editor's pointing with a massive neon sign as to who you should support in this season. Because you get Sue going, oh, I'm really in my head. I'm really hot. I hate doing this challenge. I'm really struggling. And then the first words out of Lucy and Amelia's mouths, respectively, are, just try your best. And wow, this is amazing. I'm so glad I'm here. That is a huge like neon sign towards support Lucy and Amelia. They're amazing. Did Sue have any sort of strategy with trying to do this roadblock, or was she just hoping to luck into a solution? No, she got into her own head. This sort of roadblock lives and dies on how analytical your mind is, and whether you can work out the best route. And Paul did it, and Joseph did it, Sticky did it in two, and everyone who did it in like one or two definitely worked out the tactic of this. Which is, as Paul says realize that the up steps are in groups of five so you have to go up two and the down steps are in groups of uh, five so you have to go down eight of them and work out what the final step is because the final step will be presumably your first one when you leave the start point so as soon as you work that out you have to just simplify it go i have to go down eight and up two and then just work out your route you wouldn't expect it from a roadblock like this but you did get to learn a lot about the individual personalities in terms of how they approach this roadblock. You wouldn't, th- you wouldn't think of it just because it's a, it's 41 steps. Mm. But the personalities shine through for a lot of the contestants. And the reason I think Paul does puzzle magazines is because this is literally a puzzle in the puzzle magazines. The steps puzzle is a classic puzzle that you see in these magazines. Not specifically 41 steps down and 10 of, but working out the best route up and down some steps and working out the only route up and down some steps is a classic puzzle you will see in every puzzle magazine. I just love this challenge. Mm, it's great. It's a, it's a sneaky, very clever challenge from both the producer's point of view and from the editor's point of view, as Logan said, of showing us how people approach these puzzles. Because puzzles, as a general rule, don't make for the best challenges for us to talk about. No, because it's all cerebral and, and, you know, you don't see what's going on in people's brains and they're generally just, you know, it's not exciting to watch. But, you know, if you're a cerebral kind of person, you can understand what's going on and I think it's more interesting for those kinds of people to watch. As a general rule with this season, this challenge is really good because it is pure character moments, even even in a challenge that maybe isn't the best one to talk about with your friends and family or on a podcast as we're doing. But it's driven by the character moments and driven by Lucy and Amelia arriving and being really appreciative, even if they're in last place coming into this roadblock. Or Kim trying to have a chat with Steve about Paul's behaviour and and Steve cutting off mid-sentence and saying, later, loser. But everything in this challenge and everything in the good episodes of this season looking at you, Turkey 2, is driven by the character content. And that's probably why I love this season so much. It's because they know how good the characters are, and they have the trust and faith in the characters to drive the season, rather than worrying about twists or anything like that. One interesting thing to note, too, for these two India legs is Lucy and Amelia get that one task in each episode that barely allows them to survive because in episode two we had the dialogue bit from the Bollywood task where because of the fact that they teach a foreign language uh, they can get through the dialogue quite easily 
and also have those expressive personalities to do all the different emotions and actions as well uh, during the Bollywood task. And then here in this round, the only reason why they overtake Sue is because, again, that teacher background of just getting to that stair puzzle and just having the experience of learning, the experience of teaching, of knowing how to break down this task to overtake Sue, who was just trying every permutation possible without even thinking. Yeah, because after three hours, Sue is desperate at this point. At this point, they probably should have taken the penalty an hour ago, two hours ago. Or just stop and really study the task. If they, if Sue knew she had a huge buffer, it's like, okay, all I have to do is beat Lucy and Amelia, who probably won't be here for another two hours. Just let's break this down, and then we're solidly fifth or sixth this leg. She just does every random combination, it seemed like. She just panics. There's no other word for it. She panics, and spoilers, she gets herself eliminated. And then Teresa's probably yelling at her the whole time, like she did during the first roadblock. Yeah, because at one point she tells her to shut up. Yeah. So Amelia leaves in ninth and celebrates like she's checked in in first, and she says she's not a puzzle person, but they aren't quitters by nature. And Sue finally leaves in last after 40-plus attempts. Wow. Tuk Tuk Reader says 192 rupees, but Lucy and Amelia are quoted 700, and they basically tell the drivers to shove off. And then they check in in ninth, much to their shock, and Sue and Teresa check in in last, and are eliminated from the race. I'm glad they did both India legs. Yeah. Sue and Teresa, in any other season, would probably be the highlights. The problem is, this season, they are in the top ten highlights, being perfectly iced. Yeah. Even though they get knocked out in tenth place... They did really, really well for a 10th place team. Do you know how well they did? Off the top of your head? Their average, I guess it would be, what's, two third place finishes and 10th? As of the time of recording, which is 87 seasons into Amazing Race, they have the 6th best average of any 10th place team. And when this season aired, they had the 2nd best average of any 10th place team. Wow. They are still very, very strong stats-wise. Oh, is it somebody like Allison and Donnie? I guess it would be higher. Would have been higher at the time. Oh no, they would have been 5.5. Sue and Teresa ended with 5.33, I think it was. And the team that went out in 10th in the season directly before this one, which must have been 22, is the only one that had beaten them up to that point. Idris and Shamil? Ah, it's Vietnam 1. Sue and Teresa ended with 5.67, and whoever went out in 10th in Vietnam 1 went out um, with 5.33. Stats! <laughs> Big maths energy. They averaged five teams beaten per leg, which is equal to Alison Dye. And they definitely went, would have been fourth or fifth this leg if it wasn't for a few flights of stairs. Yeah. And I think in I think Sue and Teresa are one of those teams that you could slot into any season and they would probably do decently well in any season. I think for their archetypes, especially of the kind of wackier middle-aged women team, you go, nah, they're not going to do that well. They'll go out really quickly. And actually, they surprise you. Yeah, they didn't go home in 2.7 seconds like the vegan warriors did. Yeah, yeah for all their insanity that we see on screen actually they're very competent racers they had an issue in that sue stressed out here and the aura spray couldn't save her but i think in any other season they would have made a decent run they probably would have been maybe fifth or sixth in any other season they just got unlucky here curious why Teresa didn't do one of these two roadblocks yeah i don't know maybe they thought that sue was a puzzler but the heat, especially in Jaipur, was probably a factor that they didn't factor in. Yeah, and maybe Teresa was was sick that day, for all we know. So, have you guys got anything else you want to say about this episode before we talk about the insanity that is episode four? Uh, no, I'd have nothing down in my little corner. Anything else you want to bring up about <laughs> Adam and Dane? Uh, no. <laughs> the input from Michelle's Adam and Dane corner. 
It's empty this week. <laughs> so next time, Team Sly to Dubai, and let's be honest, Grace will probably pronounce it D-Boy. The competition heats up, and one team doesn't even make it to the pit stop, as Lucy and Amelia get arrested. So good! <laughs> I got goosebumps from watching this preview. <laughs> I obviously know what happens, and I obviously know how insane episode 4 is. And I'll caveat it with, I tend to hate the UAE legs. They tend to be very annoying to me, because the UAE is a very artificial place, and it doesn't have the history that they can kind of base the challenges on, so it tends to be, oh, look how rich they are, or look how insane it is to have a ski resort in the desert. This Dubai leg, however, is amazing. For all the wrong reasons. Have you guys got anything else you want to say? No. Nope. Good. In that case, thank you for listening to our Amazing Race Australia recap. We'll be back next week to recap the amazing episode four. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logsabracky, Michelle is better, and I'm Major Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. See you next week. Bye. Peace out and just chill till the next episode. <laughs>